This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Edinburgh Book Festival um, and welcome to Holly Baxter and Rhiannon Lucy Coslett, uh, the Vagenda ladies. Um, the book is written with a ton of energy, a lot of laughs. It's um, at the forefront of the fourth wave of feminism, is what I read when I was doing some research into it. So we'll be asking the ladies <laughs> whether that's true or not. Um, Vagenda was launched as a media satire website or an online feminist website, depending on which you prefer to believe, or maybe it's both, in 2012 and became massively popular. It had 10,000 hits in its first hour, 150,000 in the first 16 days and 8 million in the first year. Um, the tagline is Like King Lear but for girls, which is taken from a review of The Iron Lady by Grazia. I did wonder what that was when I first read it. <laughs> and Rhiannon and Holly are both journalists with a really impressive credential, considering that they are really young and quite uh, new out of uni. Well, it's impressive anyway, but especially considering how young they are. And they started this website fresh from uni two and a half years ago, and it has brought them here to talk about Vagenda tonight. So I'm not going to talk and ask them too many questions. I'm gonna, I assume there will be lots of questions from everyone here. Can I just check everyone's turned their mobile off before we go any further? And before I forget, they will be signing. <laughs> they will be signing afterwards um, in, the main, uh, in the main bookshop. Okay, ladies, should we start with maybe um, you telling us where the journey began and how it brought you to the website? Um, well, I think the main thing that we always emphasise when we started the Vagenda, it was because we had absolutely nothing to lose. So we graduated into the recession and I was literally living in Rhiannon's airing cupboard. <laughs> and, um, there was, um, it's funny actually, when we wrote the book, we wrote this in um, the sort of beginning half, explaining where it started down. We got something back from the editor being like, no melodrama, please, just the truth. And I was like, no, it really was the truth. Like, I did live <laughs> in an airing cupboard. But um, we had sort of graduated. We didn't have much that we really, we didn't really see where we were going or much to do. And so essentially we would go down to the corner shop we would buy the two for five or wine deal and a stack of women's magazines and we would read them for fun really because we couldn't afford to go out we lived in london we went to ucl and um i had just started working in a technology pr firm which is very glamorous um sort of selling fiber connect cables to various technology <laughs> magazines and rhiannon was working for a website and um we would sit here with these magazines and think well you know this is, this is our nightly entertainment and our weekend entertainment. We would go through them, and after a while, we just... Well, the first thing that I really noticed was I got really, really bored. It was the sort of the same tips again and again and again. I mean, every now and then you get a great example, like Step Away from the Penis, which was um, in Cosmopolitan. <laughs> it was talking about how you shouldn't... Um, sleep with somebody until after the first date. Um, <laughs> but um, apart from that, really it was, um, it was the kind of thing where we would read that stuff and we would laugh because it was so ridiculous, but they were real tips. And we were getting sort of bored by all of the content that we were seeing. And so after a while we were like, well, 
there's got to be traction in making fun of this. We have no media connections. We had nothing to lose at all. We set up our blog completely for free. Um, we put it online thinking that our mums would read it, possibly also our dad, since my dad is here tonight for the first time. <laughs> and I just said, step away from the penis. <laughs> 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 completely overwhelmed and surprised when we got 60,000 views in 24 hours and um, profiled across the national media within a week. We started writing the book within six months. The rest is history, really. Yeah. And you were the same. So you were sitting doing this in the flat together. Was there a sort of article that was the final straw for you? Or was it fun at that point? Or were you angry? Were you amused? What, what led you to... I think, like, what Holly hasn't said, like, in her bit is that she used to read aloud to me from these magazines in a sarcastic voice. <laughs> and we'd kill ourselves laughing, and we were thinking, if this is funny, like, maybe our friends will find it funny as well. So it's kind of that. But, yeah, underneath, there was a real kind of anger about it because, you know, we just graduated. We, like, we were skin. We had no real career opportunities. We were both feeling quite miserable about the whole thing. And these magazines were peddling the kind of lifestyle that we were supposed to be aspiring to. It was selling us a kind of dream of femininity. This is what you need to do to be a woman. You need to buy all these products. You need to, you know, like, we couldn't even afford... We were eating basically tea bags on toast. So kind of the idea that you would spend 50 quid on a moisturiser was ridiculous. So, yeah, there was one watershed one, which was um, in Cosmopolitan, and it was a double-page spread... And it was, on one, ha on one side, you had a feature, and it was about body confidence, and it was about how you should love yourself the way that you are. And on the other side was a plastic surgery advert, which had <laughs> a woman holding up a sign that said, I've just had my breasts done, but the biggest change you'll see is on my face. And it was that juxtaposition of... And we felt that really, like, summed up magazine culture as a whole. On one hand, you've got editorials saying, you, you know, trying to empower you as a woman and telling you that you should be yourself and you're amazing as you are. And then on the other hand, it's saying, you know, if you get your tits done, that will transform your whole life. And, and I think that's what it was for us. We just sort of thought, no, this is enough. We've had enough. And nobody scrutinised this. And... Um, because we didn't expect anyone to read it, I guess we could be quite extreme in our satire of it and quite rude <laughs> about some of the journalists who were producing this content. And then when they started reading it, it was a bit of a shock, really, um, I suppose. But and has, has there been a backlash, both from, I suppose, journalists, but also from on Twitter, because you've got a very lively Twitter account, you know, and I think most feminists get backlash, as we were talking about earlier, what kind of things happened and were you set up for that? Were you expecting it? Well, I, I mean, if you read the quote it. on the back, we've got, a quote, <laughs> we've got a quote on the back of the book from Polly Vernon, who's a Grazia journalist, and it says, it's standard issue bile, they will grow out of it. And we actually, we put it on the back of the book because we just thought it was so brilliant. Um, <laughs> it was really good. And then she was sort of chased up by someone when the book came out because she'd said that about the blog. And they said, um, so do you have anything more to say? And she said, um, I think they're the UKIP of feminism. And, um, <laughs> and that when pressed about what she meant about that, she said they're two, one issue. And I was like, is that your only problem with UKIP? <laughs> two, one issue. I mean, have a whole manifesto. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, we've had all sorts 
of um, all sorts of abuse. Uh, memorably, at the beginning of the vlog, we had somebody tweet us saying that the vagina was the equivalent of Mein Kampf, which was um, particularly strange having sort of your feminist blog compared to the autobiography of Hitler. But, um, I mean, there has also been, you know, quite quite severe criticism of the blog or, you know, a lot of anti-feminists sort of crawling out of the woodwork. But I have to say, what I think we really expected when the agenda became big was that we would get a lot of abuse, especially possibly from men, and that never came. That really it was incredibly supportive from the outset, especially from men in many ways, in that we didn't We've never really had any... Yeah, I'd say like 95% of the abuse we've had is from other feminists, which <laughs> doesn't bode too well yeah. <laughs> for the stages of the, of the movement at the moment. But I think also it's kind of um, activists negotiating, uh, you know, the fact that we now have a new platform and that's the internet and obviously on Twitter in 140 characters there's not that much room for nuance, unfortunately. So um, it can get quite nasty at times. But equally, we've had some amazing letters from like teenage girls saying, I'm 13 and I'm the only feminist in my village. <laughs> and I found your blog and now I feel better about the fact that I'm flat-chested. And, you know, that's great. You know, that, that sort of nixes all the horrible criticism in one swoop. So, yeah, we've definitely had so much more support than we've had abuse. I don't yeah. think we could continue if we didn't. Yeah. And how does the agenda fit into what is being called the fourth wave of feminism? And I don't know, maybe explain to us what the fourth wave of feminism is. And it's funny, really, because I think when we set up the agenda, we didn't even intend to call it a feminist website. We sort of we set up something that we saw as sort of satirising the media. And when we got profiled, we were sort of quite prominently profiled as um, faces of fourth-wave feminism, and we were like, wow, what is fourth-wave feminism? Because apparently we're, we're at the forefront of we're it, it. So we, should, we should know. But, um, I mean, what it seems to be is, um, is a really good sort of um, group of people campaigning on different issues. So there's been Laura Bates on everyday sexism, there's been No More Page 3, there's been um, sort of uh, Nimco. Nimco Ali and Layla who have been doing the anti-FGM campaigns. There's been so many different things um, in fourth-wave feminism, and what I kind of see it, I think we both see it as, is um, feminism taking on many different fronts in sort of different groups, which has been really positive. Yeah, it's um, been really good, because I think, like, a lot of the young women that we spoke to, they felt that in order to call themselves feminists, they had to sign up to a kind of checklist, and they had to tick all these boxes, and if they weren't able to tick all these boxes, they weren't proper feminists. And I think what internet feminism has done, it's allowed you to kind of engage with the things that you feel really strongly about without feeling as though you have to sign up to a whole ideology. I mean, I didn't call myself a feminist till I was about 24. I don't know how old you were, but it was certainly something that... My mum was always a feminist. She was very firmly a feminist, and I remember being about 16 years old. And there was a Christina Aguilera vi video on MTV. I don't know if you remember the video for Dirty. She's wearing like, she's wearing like little red knickers and then crotchless chaps. And she's gyrating in a boxing ring of water and kind of like, you know, touching herself. And my mum actually came in and she stood in front of the TV and she went, this is not what I fought for. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I was 15 at the time, and I went, oh my God, mum, shut up. Like, nobody needs feminism anymore. Like, what are you talking about? It's empowering. And it took me, like, nine years from that point to, I think probably until some sexism had been done to me, and then yeah. I was like, hold on a minute. <laughs> um, so it's been a journey for us as well, you know, and I think for our readers, like a lot of our readers didn't define themselves as feminists, but had been feeling the same things about the media that we were feeling. And then the more that they looked into it and the more that they read, they thought, actually, yeah, I am. Yeah. And I think that just shows how much stigma was attached to the term. Is that even we didn't even feel comfortable calling ourselves that for quite a long time. Mm. And going back to the media, do you think that things really are worse now? I mean, you've got lots of examples in the book um, about adverts in, the, in 1915 for, is it salt cellars, for which are the old term for bingo wings. And you <laughs> yeah. know, So this pressure on women isn't new. Why is it? Why did you pick up on it now? Or why hasn't it been picked up on in this way before? Is it worse? Or are the influences stronger? It's strange because when we started researching the book, we really expected to sort of see this um, linear progression. And what we found actually was that um, the first women's magazines sort of back in 1880 were sort of quite feminist. Um, they were quite forward-thinking, and they were in the 20s. And then we saw them sort of dip down again in the 50s and then come right back up again in the 70s and 80s and go like oh, in the 90s. <laughs> and um, it was really strange. I mean, I remember I was sitting in the um, women's library in London and um, me having these two magazines side by side and one was from the 50s and one was from 2013 and both of them were, had on the front cover Does He Really Love You quiz inside. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> in, in both features, it heavily implied that he doesn't really love me. <laughs> Spoiler alert from every women's magazine you're ever going to read. But, um, I mean, that was what was so strange was that actually they had progressed and then they had gone downhill again. And I think um, we obviously grew up, we had, well, I had a Cosmo subscription in the 90s. And um, I think we grew up in a particular sort of dearth of feminism. Um, so, yeah, it, w it was a strange thing to see how much it had gone downhill and how much it was needed to sort of pick up on it again, where people had already attacked it in the 70s and the 80s, how almost necessary it was to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, I mean, like, Cosmo, when it launched in Britain in the 70s, it was kind of regarded as being at the forefront of women's liberation because it was talking about sex in a way that women's magazines hadn't done before. And it was saying you, you can enjoy sex. I mean, it was still mainly about you making men enjoy sex but it was also saying you can enjoy this you're allowed to enjoy this a little bit but not too much um <laughs> but better than you know it is now and i think that's what we've struggled with a little bit is that you know sometimes we talk to older women particularly and they're like but cosmo cosmo is so revolutionary it had all these feminist articles in it what's happened and i think it just so happened that we grew up in a period that was so consumerist and it was so kind of it geared towards making women feel insecure about their bodies so that they bought products, that there was not really any room anymore for political thought or political argument. It's like that's just vanished from most women's magazines now. The average feature length, um, and this was someone who used to edit for Marie Claire who told us this, is now 300 words wow. for a feature in a women's magazine. It's like there's no real... Because of how advertising and PR has taken over, there's no real 
acknowledgement of the fact that women are interested in ideas and they're interested in long reads and that they're interested in kind of intelligent articles. Uh, book pages have all but vanished. I mean, it's, it's really sad, actually. Yeah, so really sad. why are we still reading them? Because they are still selling. What's your theory on why people still buy these magazines? Well, there are various theories. I mean, for me, I think I always saw it when I was younger as this sort of guide to how I should be as a woman and how to grow up and things like that. And I really saw these magazines as sort of bastions of truth. And um, I also think that what an interesting thing that somebody said on the Vagenda blog once was um, there's a sort of psychological phenomenon about if you put a lot of time into reading something or into you know, in general being into something, um, by the time you realise that it's not really delivering what you want, you become defensive about it just purely because you've made that investment. And so th I think that's quite an interesting psychological argument. Um, I also think that women are, women are obviously still raised, have traditionally been raised to be decorative within society. And these magazines really sort of tap into that um, insecurity about beauty and about your physical appearance. They have things about like the circle of shame on celebrities and things, you know, so-and-so has disgusting cellulite or so-and-so. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so-and-so has armpit stubble. I mean, armpit hair would be like front page news. But, like, <laughs> stubble, I mean, is enough. It has been enough many times. And um, then, you, you know, you buy into that because there's such a there's such a magnifying glass on you all the time as a woman, and then you start seeing the circle of shame on yourself, essentially. And once you're in that cycle of shame, I don't know about you, but I found it very difficult to break out of, and that's why I started challenging magazines. I mean, it's quite, it's quite a complicated psychological process that goes on. I don't know, I can't speak for everyone, but for me, certainly. If I'm feeling a bit fatter, if I'm feeling a bit down about myself, I'll buy a magazine, because... They have, they're like your, you know, they sort of come across as being your fairy godmother. They can tell you what you need to do in order to be better. And I think women still set a lot of store in them in terms of authority because for a really long time, they were the only thing that you could get that would give you a glimpse of feminine culture. For most of the 20th century, all the newspapers were completely male-orientated. Yeah. It wasn't until the 80s, I think, that newspapers started having women's sections and, you know, sections that kind of dealt with women's issues. And that was mainly because, you know, as the feminist movement was happening, it was being covered in things like women's own. And that's what was so revolutionary about it, is that Women's Own was running articles about domestic violence, and it was like stealth feminism. Women were buying these and reading them in their kitchens. But up until that point, the only glimpse that you had of feminine culture or what other women were doing, what other women were feeling, what other women were thinking, was through women's magazines. And I think we still have that hangover today. It's like... I think, oh, God, what do I, I need to buy clothes? I'm supposed to buy clothes. Capitalism says I should buy clothes. I'll buy Grazia. It will tell me the clothes to buy. And, you know, then you read it, and it's full of all these incredibly slim models. And I've never come away from a woman's magazine and not felt bad about myself. And there was a study that was done, actually, in America, which said that most women feel bad about themselves within four minutes of reading a woman's magazine. <laughs> 
Um, and yet we so, persevere. And yet we persevere. But I think it is a kind of masochism. It's, it's the same reason so many people read the sidebar of shame. Yeah. It's like, let's look at all these women in bikinis who are much thinner than me. It's, it's almost the like it's becoming great. sidebar shame the Daily Mail website. Yeah, yeah. And Sorry. In case anyone isn't aware of the sidebar shame. It's all the sort of celebrity stories down it's, the side. Yeah, it's the bit down the side of the Daily Mail website that focuses completely on women and their bodies. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a really special area. <laughs> um, I mean, you, you read these studies that say, you know, within four minutes, um, someone will feel bad when they're reading a women's magazine, and you think that's really horrifying and surprising. But also, when we were doing this research for the book and stuff, we found things like Advertising Week, which is a magazine for sort of advertisers and PRs, um, and they had run a study that they were completely open and proud of, which was, when do women feel worst about themselves? And this came out last year, and it was basically just, you know, they had sent out this survey to a lot of women and said, you know, when do you feel most insecure about how you look? And um, they'd correlated the results, and it had come out, you know, women feel worse on Monday at 8 a.m. and, like, Thursday at 6 p.m. And um, so... The conclusion was, this is a great opportunity for marketers um, to go out to magazines and to be really, and the media in general, and to be targeting women at these times because they're most vulnerable, they feel most insecure, and that's a real marketing opportunity. And I think you have to be aware that that is, that is how marketers see women consumers. They're saying, I want to go out and target your insecurities. That is their main line of attack for women. And so... That's happening in magazines every day. No wonder you feel shit opening the, <laughs> the magazine. Sorry for saying shit. <laughs> Twice. Um, um, but after opening the magazine, of course you do, because that's what it's geared towards doing. It's literally its aim. Yeah. I, I think as well that sometimes they aim magazines towards age groups, and it's the younger people that are reading it. So I remember reading more, which had Position of the Fortnight, Way before I knew really what position of fort white was meant. Yeah. What is that? And I think, do you think that's common? Oh, totally. And it's, it's actually like, it's amazing that they've got away with it for, for so long, actually. Because I, I remember I was reading Bliss when I was about 12, and they had a whole thing in it about 69ing. And my mum was a bit like, Are you, should you be reading this? <laughs> I'm not sure that you should. By the time I was. 15, I was reading Cosmopolitan, which had like one of the tips that we look at in the book is um, this is a serious Cosmo sex tip put a donut around his penis and nibble it off. <laughs> Numerous logistical problems with this. For one thing, have you ever seen the size of the hole in a donut? <laughs> and for another, on the next page, they are diet tips. So, <laughs> what are you supposed to do there? Yeah, I mean, that's the weird universe that they inhabit. Ordinarily, in a women's magazine universe, you can never eat a donut. The only circumstance is that you're allowed to eat a donut. It's off your when boyfriend's <laughs> It's around a phallus. I mean... But yeah, I mean, they sell, they basically sell advertise, they sell audiences, they sell readers to advertisers. And in the book, we kind of look at um, the demographic for Glamour magazine, for instance. And they're saying things like, you know, this woman buys one expensive handbag a month and she would quite like a car to kind of compliment her handbag. <laughs> I don't know a single woman who wants a car, who buys an expensive handbag a month for a start and then wants a car to compliment her handbag. I mean, a lot of it is just bullshit, basically, <laughs> that they have made up. And they always kind of pitch it older than it is as well because, obviously, I was 15 reading Cosmopolitan. 15-year-old girls do not have that much 
disposable income. I think mine oh. stretched to super noodles and That was about it. Um, but they're saying that you know the women who read it are 26 to 35. I've, n- I've yet to meet a 35-year-old woman who reads Cosmopolitan because it does read like a teenage magazine. It is very geared towards that audience. And that's two of the, you know, the most, or not the most important, but certainly important chapters in the book are the influence that this has on children and how they're then growing up and you know, how do we move them on from that. And I think the other chapter is the use of, the, of rape and the word rape and how that's become more prevalent in there two chapters in the book that kind of move away from the media thing but are still really important. Can you tell us a bit more about why you included those? Well, I mean, when we were writing the book, um, things like Sturbanville had just happened. So that was um, a really famous American case where um, a girl had been raped and um, numerous pictures had been taken of her by her classmates and sort of spread around the internet. And it had been seen as this really um, sort of hilarious thing by her classmates and I think um, in general we were seeing um, what we believed was rape culture sort of being sort of escalating in social media and that was something that um, that sort of seemed to have bled down maybe from violent porn and things like that and what was so worrying to us when we looked at women's magazines was often that um, they would be they would be presenting women on their front covers or something who were almost indistinguishable from lads mags and things like that. And um, they were taking often sort of sex tips from porn and then saying things like, for instance, I guarantee you can go and pick up a women's magazine today and it will tell you to be a stripper for your boyfriend. That's just something that that is sort of now par for the course. And I think as much as that is kind of funny and is kind of stupid, um, it is also, it's a kind of weird, real concern because it, it's... It's strange. It centres um, sex as like something that is, you know, not is passive by a woman and is being done to her by a man and is not about pleasure. And um, and there was a real problem with rape culture that we saw sort of developing on social media as well around that. That sort of took that to a big extreme. And also, lad, lads, mags kind of trivialising it. There was a really quite disturbing study two years ago where they asked male readers to distinguish between statements that were made in certain lads mags, I think it was FHM, Maxim and and Loaded um, and a book that was called The Rapist's Files, Real Testimonies from Rapists, Convicted Rapists and the majority of people could not tell the difference between the statements and that's really worrying. It's the attitude that was kind of not so much in the imagery, although that's an issue too, but also in the editorial in Lads Mags and the way that they treat women. It was stuff like smash her on a park bench, she loves that, and stuff like that, like really dark, disturbing shit. And um, the more we started looking into it, the more that we felt that we were sort of going backwards in a way, and rape had become a source for a joke essentially I mean we did a um, we did a weekend where we went up to a girls school in Rutland and afterwards we were like just sat in the common room having a chat with these girls they were sick formers and we were talking about uh, boys making rape jokes about girls and they were all kind of nodding along they were like yeah we put up with that yeah. all the time and we're not quite sure how to challenge it because I think you're taught that as a teenager, and it's certainly something that I had. 
you get these boys making these horrible, horrible jokes about girls, but you don't want to say, well, actually, that makes me feel uncomfortable, yeah. because then they'll just mock you for being lame. And these girls are, like, living it so much worse than I ever did because the jokes seem to have become so much more violent and so much more dismissive of sexual violence. And that's something that we really, really wanted to address in the book because it, it does feel like quite a modern problem. It does feel like it's something that's new and that's happening now because of lad mags and because of the internet and because of ultra-violent pornography as well. Like, there have been studies where boys have said... Um, if a girl struggles and she says no, that just means that she wants it. And they've got that from certain types of porn, and that's really scary. Yeah, I really, mean, really also, a really, like, successful magazine when we were writing the book that still sort of exists online is um, called, called Unilad, um, was something that was really going around universities at the time, and that um, just, I remember sort of writing about it and it having 250,000 followers, and it skyrocketed since then. Um, and its sort of most notorious feature that it ran was under the headline, 80% um, of rapes go unreported, so that's pretty good odds, lads. And that was, this was a mainstream magazine targeted at young men at university. And so the fact that that was just a sort of, you know, offhand joke for kids at uni who clearly we're not really batting an eyelid, just felt really, really depressing. Yeah. So before I go to the audience, what is your, what's your call to arms? What would you want people to do? What do you hope that comes out of the book and out of the website? I mean, I think that for us, one of the main things is that we don't feel like young people, that's men too, are being given the critical tools that they need in order to analyse the media that they're being presented with, whether or not it's being able to read a magazine and see that all the women who are portrayed in that magazine all look the same and don't even actually look like themselves. I think that's the key. Like, So yeah. even the most beautiful supermodels are photoshopped out of all recognition. Um, and I think that's really important, especially in, an, in, an, in a society that's becoming even more saturated by the media. We're not being taught to question it. We're becoming more and more um, complicit in it. We're believing more and more what we see. And I think that is urgent. There are charities who are doing it, like Media Smart, who go into schools and they teach kids about the damaging effects of the media. But not enough's being done. And, and Really, there aren't that many people say, out there who are saying, you know, think about what you read. And I think no. that's really important for the next generation of young people. Definitely. <laughs> I think that's, um, that's our sort of main thing, really. I think that for a long time, when we started the Vagenda, a lot of people were tweeting us saying, oh, yeah, actually, like, I kind of thought this for ages. Um, you know, can I get involved and things like this? And it was like so many people said that they had been thinking it for ages. And I think people had almost, especially women who were consuming this media, had just got this kind of apathy where they felt like they couldn't demand a better media than they were being given. And that media was becoming more and more stereotyped, more and more ridiculous, more and more sort of consumer-oriented, and um, less and less representative of them. And I think what we really want to sort of take from the book and from the work that we've done in schools and on the blog is that it is okay to demand better media, that more diverse media, that, you know, you do have a voice now, especially as everything is moving online, and that 
faced with the critical tools and things to be able to do that as well, we, we do have a more positive future for women in that sphere. I do think now is like the key time as, as print media is dying and it's moving online now is the key time for people to kind of speak out about what they feel is okay and what, what they feel is not okay. I mean, we're seeing a lot of sexism in the media at the moment surrounding female politicians and their clothing and the way that they behave. And because of Twitter and because of kind of um, social media in gen general, we have like the first international female solidarity movement, essentially, where women can communicate with each other in a way that we couldn't before which is why magazines were so successful. It's because they, they, you know, before the internet, they provided that kind of insight into what other women were thinking and other women were doing. But now you can go online and you can talk to other women about what they're thinking and what they're doing. So I think now is a really crucial time for people to kind of get involved and sign the petitions that they believe in and campaign and just shout louder and keep doing it. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, thank you. I'm going to see if anyone in the audience has any questions. Um, if you put your hands in the air and I will let the roving mic. Um, do you want to go to this gentleman as you're standing? I want to give you the name of a lady who I think was born Belgian but has spent most of her life in France and is a prominent feminist on the continent. I wonder who you've heard of her. In Rigore. Haven't, no. no <laughs> <laughs> I think um, that, that's an interesting question as to what you define as a feminist because, and I was saying outside that there's a Grazia article this week that more men are feminists than women, um, which I haven't she been able to verify. She said that, I was like, to which I said, bullshit, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. How, and how would you define a feminist now, which is obviously very different from how the word has been used in the past? I think we always agreed that we wanted to define it as a person who believes in gender equality and um, that there would be no checklist beyond that, that, you know, men, women, um, people who shave their legs, people who don't, you know. I mean, Cosmo famously did a speech called Can You Be a Feminist and Vajazzle? Uh, <laughs> I think, so yes, you can vajazzle, no, you can't. Um, that basically it can be just somebody who overall believes in gender equality and doesn't, um, there's no criteria beyond that. And as far as um, being seen as a person goes, I mean, that's absolutely, I think, what all sort of progressive people want in society, for everybody to just be seen as a person. Um, that's definitely what I want, and I'm so glad that's what you want. Um, unfortunately, at the moment, the context um, of sort of how we are brought up in society is very different for men and for women and um, hopefully one day that will change and I'm, I'm sure 
we both support that. But at the moment, we also do have to acknowledge that being raised as a woman in society comes with its own sort of lack of privilege, and that's something that needs to be addressed as well. Yes, we've been on. Yeah. We've both been on women's. Uh, yeah, we have. We actually, um, <laughs> when our blog, when we first launched our website back in 2012, within five days we got a call from Women's Hour, and I went on the radio and argued with Louise Court, the editor of Cosmopolitan, <laughs> about women's magazines, which was absolutely terrifying. It was brilliant, though. Like, <laughs> I'd never been brilliant. on the radio before. Um, I, and actually, you know, to her credit, she was, she was, you know, quite hard-line on the radio, but then afterwards she did say, can you stop being mean about us, please? <laughs> which made me think, oh, we're getting uh, somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> actually, you're a bit worried stop about this. Stop being mean about all women. Then. <laughs> uh, yeah. We've got a lady uh, down here. Thank you. Hi, you were saying one of the things that we can now do is to sign up much more easily for campaigns. And I think probably the recent FGM campaign <clears throat> I mean, we, we haven't been intimately involved with the FGM campaign. We know um, Nimco, who is like, the head of that campaign, it's been very, very effective in terms of its reach. Um, I think it just shows that actually this has been something that's been a problem for 20 years or so. Oh, yeah, that a long time. Women, these women's voices have not been listened to because it's been seen as like a small immigrant problem that's not of relevance to the rest of the country. And now because of the internet, those voices have been amplified. And also I think the new generation of young women are more savvy. They know who to target. They know to target the newspapers. They know which organizations to target. They're amazing at social media in a way, you know, they can get their message out to so many people, to thousands and thousands of people. It's been astonishingly successful. I mean, the fact that they got Michael Gove to make a statement yeah. on it, I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. I mean, I remember interviewing Nimco Ali for the New Statesman and her being like, I can't believe I got so many politicians to stand outside today and say the words, I am Fanny Forward, <laughs> <laughs> including Michael Gove. But I mean, I think that is a serious achievement and it made the news. But I mean, she's also, they're running this incredible group called Daughters of Eve, where it's read by people who have been victims of FGM themselves and who um, you know, have this support group for people who have gone through FGM. And um, they are then sort of going into their own communities and going back and doing all of this amazing grassroots work. And I think, I mean, it's obviously not a campaign that we personally do, but we're so supportive of it, and I mean, obviously, there's only so much we can say about it, but it seems to be going. Fairly, I think there's well. still like a lot more that needs to be done. Because do you remember that evening standard party we went to? Like the evening, <laughs> <laughs> the evening it's standard had though. a party about like influential Londoners, and they they'd kind of jumped on board with the FGM campaign to their credit, which I think is amazing because they have an enormous circulation, and they'd brought this um, really really talented singer in, who had been a victim of oh, FGM. God, yes who had written a song about it 
in, I can't remember which African language he spoke, but it was in her tribal language. And it was she, basically, Boris Johnson made a speech. And then he said, and now you should all listen to this young woman over here who's singing a song about FGM, like this. And she sang this amazing song. And only about 10 people were listening. The rest of them were just men in, white men in suits, chatting amongst themselves. And that, for me, really said like that there was a, actually a really fucking long way to go still, because this is an important issue and half the people in that room didn't even care about it yeah. still. Part of the reason that they didn't listen was because they had her on an extremely small stage in the corner as well. So. Yeah, Boris Johnson had been on the big stage. Yeah, so this, yeah. obviously it needs to still be prioritised more by the yeah. media. Is there a lady over here who had her hand in there? This is kind of the recurring um, theme in our talks, I think, because a lot of people say that, or when we go and talk in schools, a lot of girls say, you know, I, I, I guess I believe in everything you're saying, but I don't want to brand myself a feminist. And, I mean, feminism has suddenly sort of turned out to have quite a bad name for itself, mainly because it was sort of sabotaged by the media when it was really, really big. And um, I think, really, the side that I've come down on is that as long as people do believe in the central tenets of feminism, as long as they do believe in gender equality, um, the label... It doesn't really matter. It's obviously sad <laughs> that people would get rid of feminism when actually it's, very, it's a very important word for women. And I also think that, you know, you wouldn't ask... A lot of people are like, well, why can't we call it equalism? And it's like, well, you wouldn't ask to call the black civil rights movement the equal races civil rights movement. I mean, I think, and quite rightly, because usually these movements are named after the people who have been oppressed and who have fought for their rights. At the same time, I think as long as people believe in gender equality, that's 90% of the work done, so really I'm not going to be too upset about whether they take on a label or not. I mean, it is hard, and I think it, it really comes down to like how well you know your friends and how able you are to kind of talk to them about these things. A really amazing writer wrote a thing on our blog recently that's called... Um, how not to react to anti-feminist women and it's about um, this campaign that was going on Twitter that was called Women Against Feminism and a lot of it was like really a misunderstanding of what feminism meant you know so like there were these girls holding up placards who were saying I'm, uh, I, I'm not a feminist because I like men and kind of you know really simplistic stuff like that and this article is quite good actually because it sort of talks about like how angry it makes her but how kind of yelling at somebody about it is basically the worst thing that you can do because then you're buying into that stereotype a lot of people have an idea about feminism that is kind of like you know really raggy women in dungarees <laughs> shouting at people and um you know sometimes girls come up to me and they're like i'm not a feminist feminism's bullshit and i feel like shouting at them but then i remember myself and that christina aguilera video <laughs> and my mum keeping her temper <laughs> and saying well no i'm just gonna give you this book just read this and i think you know it's hard it is it is a constant struggle but i think the more women speak out about it and the more it's kind of featured in mainstream media the more it becomes acceptable to use that word. 
Oh yeah, totally. But what's great about that is that every time they do that now, they get absolutely ridiculed on the internet. <laughs> Until, you know, a lot of them will think about it and then make another statement where they're like, you know... Beyonce now describes herself as a feminist, but two years ago, she said in an interview, I, I'm not a feminist, I like men. So I do think it's, you know, for a lot of women it is a journey, just like it has been for us. And I do think actually having the internet and people being like, you're being an idiot, can you just like, think about what you're saying, is actually helping quite a bit. But yeah, it is very damaging. I don't think it's helpful. This lady down here. Hi, um, thank you. This has just been a great discussion and uh, a call to answer all of us. But my question really goes back to the Christina Aguilera original. <laughs> so much of that going on now. How do we, as a society, get young girls to understand that sexualisation is not the same as empowerment? Because that seems to be how it's been sold to them at the minute, and, and they buy it. God, it's a difficult one. <laughs> so, trying to solve the problems of the world up here. I mean, um, I bought into it wholesale, so... Yeah, I feel as if just opening a dialogue is usually enough. I think what we've found, we have this, this PowerPoint presentation called um, What's Wrong with Women's Magazines? And um, we've gone to speak at various schools, and I remember one school in particular we went to, we were talking to 14-year-old girls, and um, some, like... As they came in, these 14-year-olds looking at us, and one of them saying to her friend under her breath, stuck up bitches. <laughs> <laughs> Me being like, well, okay. And um, she was actually the first girl who, um, who started asking questions when we finished the talk. And we tried to... I think, actually, what we found with the agenda is a really good way of engaging people is through humour. And so we go into these schools, we have, like, ridiculous sex tips that are all real... We talk about the donut on the penis, we talk about all of this stuff, and um, actually it really it gets through to people um, in a way that, you know, sort of getting angry with them or pointing to Christina Aguilera and being like, I didn't fight for this, sometimes <laughs> just <Didn't> doesn't. Work. <laughs> because if, um, if you do make them laugh, that's a really good way of, of boosting their confidence in themselves as well, I think, and, and helping them to see themselves as sort of funny debating kind of people who don't who aren't just objects for others to look at and so personally i found that a really good way of engaging sort of teenagers and young girls yeah and i mean we don't have daughters ourselves but we've had mums write into us and sort of talk to us about the ways that they handle it with their young daughters and i think the key is to sort of be there while it's happening and not just leave them out on a kind of YouTube island where they're consuming this stuff and not thinking about it. But, you know, to watch the video together and to say, well, how do you feel about this? Why do you think that she's in her pants? But Robin Thicke isn't in his pants. <laughs> Robin thinks wearing a Beetlejuice suit. What do you think? Why do you think Miley Cyrus is doing that? You know, and I, I do think actually, you know, young girls are interested in discussion. They are, like, the more we go into schools, the more we realise that actually, like, young women feel really passionately about this and actually quite angry about it but they're not given the opportunity to discuss it and I think discussion is actually the key it's talking about it and not just leaving young girls alone to consume that media as passive kind of vehicles for it 
Well, uh, there was a lady down. Oh, there we go. The this lady with the uh, stripy top. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, what what are your views on, on using media to empower young girls and help them fight the peer pressure that's out there? I think it's really, really important to use the media for those sorts of things. I think um, it does all all come down to sort of education from a really young age, I think. Um, and I think there are very simple things you can do in the media, even if you can't immediately improve it. For instance, there have been sort of countries in mainland Europe that have introduced uh, warning signs on photoshopped images that say this image has been photoshopped. And I think that's just, just putting that warning on it does so much good in my mind because it just draws attention every time you look at it. This is not a real person. This is a person who has been altered graphically. And um, I think there's very simple things like that can be put into place and should be put into place almost immediately, um, should in fact become law. I also think that things like plastic surgery advertorial should just be immediately outlawed um, from magazines because we don't allow medicine to be advertised in the UK and yet plastic surgery has sort of come through a loophole and that's something that should immediately leave magazines. And yeah, there are also very active ways that the media can be used to bolster that message. I think like what you were saying about sexting, as it's called as well, like sending um, sexually explicit pictures of yourselves um, to guys, like it is a really, really, really pressing issue that's unfortunately not being dealt with by the media appropriately. I think, because most newspapers are run by male editors and male editorial teams, they don't see it as important enough of an issue, but certainly in North London, in gang culture, it is a huge problem with young women being pressurised into taking pictures of themselves, which are then being used to coerce them into sexual acts with the threat that that image will then be spread amongst like all the guys in their year. And this is something that teachers are really, really battling against. And I do think that online privacy and conducting yourself online is something that really needs to be taught in schools now from quite a young age because what I'm noticing from like kids younger than us is that they don't see a distinction anymore. Whilst I kind of grew up using the internet from about the age of 12 and probably overstepped the mark a few times in terms of sharing too much, I think like we still were aware that we were sharing and I think now they sort of just see it as real life and they don't see that distinction and they're not being educated otherwise and it's really important that they should be because stuff like that, you know, as we know from revenge porn, 
um, can come back to haunt you, can actually have really serious effects on your mental health. And in the worst cases, it led to young girls committing suicide. So it's like a massively urgent issue that we should be dealing with. And also, you know, if you do make the decision to take a picture of yourself, which you're fully within your rights to do, don't put your face in it. That's just basic. Pro tip, girls. No, seriously. <laughs> Don't put your face in it. I'm not saying that young girls should be doing that, but I'm also saying if you do make the decision to do that with your boyfriend, make sure that your face is not in the picture because it can be used in really, really negative, horrible ways against you. And girls have died because of it. So. Yeah, and really small tips like that, there's not really any excuse for not putting it into education at a very young age. This is now Facebook and everything is being accessed from the age of about five, if we're realistic, and so it should just be built into the curriculum as standard. Oh, lady, very keen here with her hand up and the red top. Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> I read so many women's <laughs> magazines, especially during the Vagenda book. I mean, it was a strange time. Um, but I mean, there are various women's magazines that actually, um, as much as a lot of women's magazines have sort of been quite negative about the Vagenda, there are some that really got on board or got in contact to sort of talk to us about how they could improve themselves. For instance, Elle magazine got in contact to ask us to go to a feminism debate and to talk to them about it, and also to talk to them about how they could improve their magazine and make it more feminist. So I saw that as a really positive step. Um, also, I don't know if you get it in Edinburgh or whether it's... Um, or whether it's, it's, it's UK-wide, it UK but, but it's only cities, but Stylist, yeah. Um, Stylist is a really good magazine because they made a commitment not to run any diets and also not to run anything that slagged off celebrities. And so just making those two commitments has actually made a really good magazine. They've got a really big career section, a book section, things that actually have been got rid of in things like Grazia. And so off the top of my head, um, Ellen Stylist have made some really good sort of feminist progressions in the last couple of years I'm quite happy with. I mean, I think the thing is as well is that like you're still going to WH Smith's and the New Statesman and the Spectator and the Economist and the New Yorker will be listed under men's interests. And the thing is, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, you can read those magazines. You're allowed to. Um, you don't have to read women's magazines. But for women's magazines specifically, like online is an amazing uh, resource for those mags. I don't know if you've ever read Rookie Mag. It's kind of aimed at teenage girls, but I'm 27 and I read it and it's really good. And I'm actually quite jealous of the French as well because whenever I go over to France, they have, they have French feminist glossy magazines, <laughs> <laughs> which you just can't imagine happening here. But because there's a market for it over there and they're much more secure in their idea of 
feminism. I mean, feminism has evolved very differently in France with Simone de Beauvoir, and it kind of never really had that hairy, man-hating image that it got in Britain. It means that they have actually quite a vibrant feminist press over there that we should be learning from. There's a great magazine that started up last year as well. It's called Libertine. I don't know if you've read that, but that's really, really good as well. And um, I quite like Nylon, which is more of a fashion mag, but kind of quite good as well. I think we've got time for one more. Um, this lady's been this lady's, oh, had a hand up for ages. There will be, the, the ladies will be around in the signing we'll be tent signing, afterwards. Yeah. So. I noticed recently that several uh, women's monthly magazines have folded, like she and he, and I was wondering um, if you know why that is, that there's less of a market now for women's monthlies, the more traditional ones that don't concentrate so much on I think, personally, the reason we're seeing a lot of these magazines folding is purely because print is dying um, as a sort of medium. I think that most things are moving online and um, that people are just buying print magazines less. Um, I think that the sort of celeb magazines still are doing well enough, I suppose, to be pumping them out every week, but I think those will eventually fold as well because they will lose out to the sidebar of shame I mean, there was, like, famously Grazia, who still managed to um, pump out one every week, uh, ran one about Jennifer Aniston last year that said, Jen, it's over, about her relationship. And um, it had gone to press that night, so it came out on Thursday morning, but unfortunately, in the hours between it going to press and sort of appearing there, she'd actually announced her engagement <laughs> to this guy. And so, very embarrassingly for them, they had run this whole thing about the end of her relationship and had... It had been proved to be complete bullshit, and um, the Daily Mail online had just picked it up and run with the actual story. And so I think that really proves how even the celeb magazines, which are an easy sell because they're very cheap and they're um, not really content-heavy, are even going to die out. I think it, it is just a case of print. No, it is dissatisfaction as well. I mean, we talk to so many women of all ages, and older women too, who talk about kind of a real fatigue with the same... I mean, basically, from the age of 14, possibly younger, you've been reading the same shit in different guises. That's, like, for at least four decades. I mean, you know, I meet so many women now, women now who just say, oh, I don't buy them anymore. They've got nothing to teach me. They've got nothing to tell me. I feel invisible when I read them because I'm seeing so many kind of beautiful young faces and you know, thin women who don't kind of reflect the reality of the diversity that Britain's made up of. So I do think it's partly because you can get better content on the internet, but I do think it's also because I think people are bored of it now. I think, and also, you know, women have brains and they're interested in consuming more sophisticated content and you can get that online without having to suffer through 50 adverts before you get to the kind of little bit of text that you actually want to read. Or you can get it in the Pagenda book. <laughs> <laughs> nice plug. That's good. Uh, I think that's a good note to end on. Nice one. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for being a really uh, engaged audience. Thank you very much uh, to Holly and to Rhiannon for coming along. And they'll be in the sign tent afterwards. And large round of applause. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.